invite you this morning to turn to Hebrews 7, Hebrews the 7th chapter. Continue our study through Hebrews, but this, this morning I am going to do what for the most part I have not done. I know that we worked very slowly through the opening three or four verses, took our time there looking at each of the clauses, and then we've tried to move through various chunks and sections But this morning, I want us to look at just one verse. We're going to read from verse, well, maybe from verse 19, just keep that in mind, verse 19 through 25. This is the word of the Lord, let us hear it and receive it by faith. The law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. And inasmuch as not without an oath he was made priest, for those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath, by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. They truly were many priests, because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost, that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them." Amen. May the Lord bless the public reading of His precious and infallible Word. Let's pray, beloved. Let's seek the Lord. Parents, pray for your children. Pray that they begin to hear and profit from the Word. Pray for your own hearts. You might be prepared to live to the glory of God. And pray that the Lord would have a word for you. Father, it is thy voice we need to hear. We ask that thou wilt shut us in here and cause us to know that stillness that comes when the Lord comes by. Recognize, Lord, that there's such distraction in this world. We have this this window where in an unusual sense in our day and generation we set aside the time to hear from God. May it be time well spent. May it be empowering, life-giving, faith-increasing. Sanctify us through thy truth. Empower the preacher. Grant a message to all our hearts. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps one of the most humbling things for any of us 
as professing believers to consider is to think over the consistency, fervency, and success of our prayer life. If you're just to cast your mind and think about the consistency, the fervency, and the success of your prayer life, I think few Christians would claim themselves to be an example in prayer, and even fewer would have any grounds to do so. And I can't help but think that things are now worse than ever. Trying to get people's attention seems to be worse than ever. Indeed, it feels like, certainly as a preacher watching on, that we are currently in a a covert operation. Our world has been invaded by another deity, a cruel despot who controls humanity through algorithms which feed our incessant, incessant craving for dopamine and even reprograms our very brains so that everyone almost seems to be handicapped with ADHD-like symptoms. That's the world in which we live. And subsequently, even the church, the bride of Christ, exists partially hypnotized. She knows the bridegroom is more beautiful than anything she has ever seen, but she can't see it. She knows his presence is the most comforting experience, but she can't feel it. She knows his word is the safest guide through life, but she can't hear it. Indeed, if ever the church lived like a husband and wife occupying two different beds, it's today. To the ancients, his love was better than wine. To the moderns, his love is barely understood. To the ancients, they would at night upon their beds seek him whom their souls love. To the moderns, the thought to seek Christ in the night seasons barely enters their head. The ancients were sick of love, to use their language. The moderns are starved of love entirely. This being the case, it has seldom been more evident than today that Christians do not persevere because of their own spiritual disciplines. If it was up to our spiritual disciplines to cause us to persevere, things would be much, much worse today than they are. And that is what we discover in our text. We discover that The church is preserved not because she is so diligent, not because she is so faithful, not because she is so determined and resolved, but because she is represented by one who is. Our text this morning is all encouragement, and I couldn't, I couldn't preach without focusing on verse 25. I felt if I, if I take anything else in, although the context is important, we'll get to that, of course, and we've already seen some of that. I felt, no, let's just let, let's let verse 25 breathe on its own. Let's just wait and consider what it says to us, allow it to bed into our own souls. Because our Lord Jesus, having set his love upon us, we learn does everything necessary to carry us into his very presence. 
Our hope then is entirely on him. And so this morning we consider a priesthood that saves to the uttermost. We've been looking at the priesthood. We've been seeing it reflected in Melchizedek. We see how it, Melchizedek's priesthood depicted things concerning the priesthood of the Messiah, pointed forward to certain truths that would only be fulfilled in the Messiah, and how the Aaronic priesthood failed to come and really satisfy everything that God intended the priesthood to fulfill. So as we listen carefully, as we pay attention to what God is saying, I want us to see five things here in this text. The power, purpose, people, perpetuity, and practice of this high priest. These are the points that will govern our thoughts for today. First, the power of this high priest. Look at the text. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. He is able. You see here two things, the grounds of his power and the evidence of his power. And I want you to think here, I couldn't help but read this text and coming to my mind was the, the, the great benediction of, of Jude, verse 24, that now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. That idea of him being able communicates power, authority. That one is designated to exercise himself in a particular work. And that since it is the Lord Jesus who has been appointed to this work, we're dealing with one who is both God and man. One, therefore, who has eternal power. One who has infinite power and authority. And able, therefore, to grant to his people everything that they need. This is indicated right here as well in verse 25. Wherefore he is able. What we see him accomplish, what we see him do is because he is able. So let us think of the grounds of his power in this way. First, he is an enthroned deity. He is an enthroned deity. Part of our problem in slowly working through this text is we forget what we've already read and considered. But back in chapter 1, this is very clear in verse 8 where it is declared there, unto the Son, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The Lord Jesus is exalted. The Alpha and Omega is exalted to be depicted as one. The Son has this declared to him, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Jesus, therefore, is declared in no uncertain terms that he is God. But when you're dealing with those who deny it and pretty much every false religion and every cult that exists that has drifted from Christianity and others as well, they, 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 this is where they fall. Up, fall. This is where they, they unify. Some will dismiss Jesus, some will uh, exalt Jesus in some fashion, but they deny his deity. And yet it is expressed in Hebrews 1 in a way in which you cannot be comprehending the argument of the chapter unless you see that it is pointing to this one made flesh who has declared, Thy God, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. He is enthroned deity. He has also exalted humanity. In the same chapter, Hebrews 1.13 it says, to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. He has exalted humanity. 
He has been put in a position unlike anyone else. He is also an appointed priest. This is where we come to our own context here, where in verse 21, where we read, those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, the Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He is appointed a priest. He is appointed with an oath. He's also made a surety. We see that in verse 22 as well. So here we have one who is, is, is being set apart. And in being set apart, we also learn that he is a perpetual representative. Verse 23, they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. That old problem of death kept standing in the way of a perpetual priesthood. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. He is able to represent perpetually, continually. You never have to have that experience that some of you have gone through. The experience of, of being acquainted with a pastor and having him shepherd you through all the highs and lows of your life, having him stand there on your wedding day, having him be there at the firstborn, having him go through there and have all those memories and then have to have someone else come in without that history, without that connection. This never happens here. This happened to the Jews. They would get connected to their priest. They would get to know their high priest, familiar with him, to trust him and so on over time. But eventually he perishes, another rises to the fore, has to engage in the work, and there's all that need to go through, that sense of getting to familiarity and acquaintance and trust and so on. Never happens with Jesus. Here we have a priest who continues forever. So this, I say, are the grounds of his power. These things show him able. He is enthroned deity. He has exalted humanity. He is appointed to this office, and he's perpetually able to fulfill it. This is why he is able. This is why he has power. Beloved, see it there. Let it get into your soul. Let it get under your skin. The apostle here is taking your eyes away from any Levitical priesthood, away from any subsequent priesthood such as the Roman Catholic priesthood or the Orthodox Church and their priesthood, and it gets you onto the eyes of the only priesthood that matters, Jesus Christ. He is the one who is able. He is able. And what is the evidence of this power? Not only the grounds of it, what's the evidence? Well, the evidence, of course, is greatly, most greatly seen in his resurrection. The reason why he occupies this position is because he rose again from the dead. This is the encouragement of Hebrews. It is recognizing this one because this, this crucial matter of the fact that the priests kept dying, even though they were by commandment in their office. Here we have one who's under oath in his position, and that oath is binding. It's going to protect, perpetually be continued, and Christ is able to fulfill it because he rises from the dead. We have a living Redeemer. Sometimes I think we go far too long from one day to the next without thinking of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, that amidst all of our problems and our strife and our difficulty and our battle with sin, what is that compared to dealing with the problem of death? This Redeemer of God's elect has given evidence of his power. Think of the tremendous language of John 10, you know it well. Verses 17 and following, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, 
But I let down of myself. I have power. I have authority. We might say he is able to let down and he is able to take it again. Either the words of a man who's lost his mind or a man who has divine authority and power. That is the one that we have representing us. The evidence of his power is in the fact that he died and rose again. He voluntarily faced death, stepped into death, came out of death, and laid to rest any argument about whether or not he was God. The evidence of his power. I mean, you have to be God to do this. He's not saying God has power. In the sense of the Father has power to do it. And of course the Father does. But he is saying, I have power. I have power. Here's humanity. Here's a man standing before people living in time and in history. And he stands there saying, I have power to deal with man's greatest enemy. All the philosophers all the rulers and sovereigns, all the scientists, they cannot deal with this problem of death. But Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, looked at in the whites of its eyes, stared it down, walked right into it, and walked right back out of it again. So this, then, is the power of this high priest. Can you not see it? He is able. He is able. Those three words should bring comfort. He is able. And you can extrapolate that, that to all the other challenges of your life. He is able. You can look at all the difficulties you're going through and ask, is he able? Yes, he's able. And we shouldn't even fall into or succumb to the questioning of it, should we? We shouldn't do as the Israelites did in the language of the psalmist coming to mind when they said, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? The very question itself reeks of unbelief. He is able. He is able. So, beloved, see his power. See also his purpose, the purpose of this high priest. What's his purpose? Because his power is directed in a particular way. It has a particular aim. Wherefore, he is able also to save, to save them to the uttermost. Here's his purpose, to save to the uttermost. Again, Jude 24, I don't have it in my notes, it just keeps coming to mind because it's the same idea. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. It's the same idea. It's the power of Jesus Christ exercised, directed, focused upon a particular endeavor, a specific mission. So the purpose of this high priest, what's he doing in saving to the uttermost? What's he doing? Well, we'll get to the them in due course. We'll see the people in just a moment. But let's see what he's doing for this, this people. First of all, he saves them from the punishment of sin, doesn't he? This is how we first think about it usually, isn't it? That he's saving us from the punishment of sin. We think of the purpose of Christ. We say, that, we say to sinners, Christ, he died for the ungodly he laid down his life, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. We, we use language like that, Colossians 2.14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. 
Christ deals with the record, the, the, the debt record of our, our sin. And it's nailed to the cross. It's put away. That which condemned us is nailed to the cross and left there. It no longer rises up with a voice to condemn. And so the prophet says that the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's all bestowed on him. It's being poured out upon him. And as such it can be said then, the glorious language of 2 Corinthians 5.21, He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He made him to be sin for us. There's this transfer of guilt. We consider the ninth commandment this morning. You've come up short, just as I have. The guilt of that is transferred to Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing on the cross. Dealing with sin. The judgment we deserve. Do you ever ask why? Why did he go to the garden to pray? Why did he allow himself to be dragged into an unfair trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin? Why did he subject himself to the punches and spittle of those men in the presence of the high priest? Why did he permit Pilate to tear apart his body and condemn him to death? Why did he permit himself to be numbered with transgressors? Why did he step into death with complete willingness and intent? Why? To save. To save. This is not just him by way of example. This is him as the representative, the high priest, doing what no other high priest did. They all served in the tabernacle in the temple and they did their work. But only this one laid down his life, the just for the unjust. Not only to save from the punishment of sin, but to save from the power of sin. 1 Peter 2, 24. Remember what Peter says? Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. Think of what Peter's saying there. He's not just dealing with this problem of the punishment of sin. He's dealing with the power of sin. That, that, that power that exists within you, that, that within your flesh there's an inclination where there's a, an ongoing battle and warfare, isn't there, between the flesh and the spirit. And in that warfare, where's your dependence? Where's your hope of deliverance? Are you hoping that just, again, by resolution, by determination, you will be able to carry yourself along in a continual series of victories over sin? Peter says that he bare our sins in his own body in the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness. The end is to help us live unto righteousness. The cross, then, is not just the answer for the sins that we, the punishment we deserve for our sin, but also as the source of our power. It gives to us a sense of victory. The whole argument of Romans 6, in essence, is this, because it takes us to the cross to see there the old man dead 
And this principle of life whereby we walk in newness of life gives to us victory. It's all sourced in and takes us back to what Christ accomplished on Calvary. And so the end of that chapter, Romans 6.22, but now being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness. We're able to bear fruit unto holiness. Christian, don't resist, don't fight, don't deny. I guess there's two pitfalls. The one that you say, well, since Christ has died for my sins and he has paid the price, it doesn't really matter how I live. That's one pitfall. The Bible is against that. The other one then is to say, well, I am now by my own strength, I am able then, because Christ has died for me, in a sense that by my own power then, now, I will, I will live a holy life. And that's wrong as well. And this is addressed in Galatians. Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Can you go on in the flesh? Can you be sanctified in the flesh? Can you live a godly life in the flesh? Is it all dependent upon your resolve to live the Christian life? Is it about information? Is it about memorizing your Bible? Is it purely about knowledge? Is it about taking enough time in the morning just to sit there and, and say to yourself, I'm not going to do certain things and I am going to do other things? Where's the source of your power? The source of your power is in Jesus Christ. The source of your power is in the cross and Christ's victory at the cross. And so he saves. He continues to save from the power of sin. Why is it that you're being sanctified? Because you have a representative. You have a high priest. Beloved, this, this, is, this is your encouragement. If you've fallen, if you've come up short, if you're feeling that the devil's just having a field day with you, that he's just running amok in your life and wrecking havoc, and you sometimes come back and ask yourself, am I even a Christian at all? Where do you go to for, for deliverance and victory? It is in Christ, in this one, wherefore he is able to save to the uttermost. It's not just dealing with your justification, it's dealing with your sanctification. Sting with the ongoing battle that you face as a believer. It's telling these believers, he's, he's pointing these Hebrews to say, look to him. Look to the one who is able to save to the uttermost. Not just something you did in the past, but you keep coming to him. You keep looking to him. You keep depending upon him. If you don't, you're going to succumb to the power of sin. So he saves from the punishment of sin, the power of sin, and also from the presence of sin. Ultimately, We'll, we'll see this more as we progress, but just to touch on it, Christ is bringing us with, with success into His very presence, away from the presence of sin itself. Philippians 3.20, our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto His glorious body, according to the working whereby He is able even to subdue all things unto Himself. He is going to change He's going to make us like unto himself in his glorified state. And we are going to be in his presence. Victory over sin fully and finally. The people of this high priest. Well, who's he doing this for? What does it say? Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost. And he liveth to make intercession for them at the end of the verse as well. Who are these people? Who are the them referred to? 
Well, we can we could we could we could theorize, we could even talk about other scriptures and so on, which we may do, but just looking at the text itself, it contains internally the answer. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. There are two things here, beloved. Note it carefully. Listen. The people, the people for whom he is doing this, number one, God is their aim. God is their aim. They come unto God. They're not just drifting through life. They're seeking to come to God. That's their hope. That's their desire. Now, if a man is not interested in God, that's, he's not included in this. I mean, let's put it this way. He has no right to claim that he's included in this. If a man has no interest in God, then it doesn't matter what he professes to do or believe. He's, he's, he, can't make, he cannot make any claim that Jesus Christ represents him. He is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God. Even think about it yourself. Again, this isn't a one and done day. This is a continued thing. The evidence, and this, again, remember the whole context. The drive of this book is to keep people, keep those that are hearing and, and reading this, keep them coming unto God by Him. In other words, it's to maintain this objective that, that God's the aim. God is the aim. The entire book of, the, of God's Word, all of God's Word is, is doing what? It, is, it, it identifies the problem that happened in the Garden of Eden. And then it's, well, how do we undo this problem? What's the solution to this problem? What's the answer to this problem? Where man who is made in, in, in perfection and holiness and he has this access into the presence of God, he has this fellowship with God. That fellowship is broken. He knows it himself internally. He runs from God. He has to be sought out by God. What's the answer? The answer is he must come to God by a certain way, but there's still this sense that God is the aim, isn't it? The whole Bible is really about identifying a people and seeing the redemptive story of a people, and one factor is true about them all, God is their aim. We sang that psalm, didn't we? Psalm 63. Thy love and kindness is better than life. Think of that. Ordinary people don't say that. The average person cannot say that. Thy love and kindness is better than life itself. The mercy of God, the gospel, the provision of Jesus Christ is better than life without it. Thy love and kindness is better than life. You can't say that unless something radically has been done in your mind and heart. So if you're here this morning in a delusion, imagining yourself to be represented by Jesus Christ, but your aim is not God. Your aim is ambition, wealth, success, ongoing health, I mean, this is your goal. This is what you live for. This is what gets you up in the morning. What gets you up in the morning is, is the idea of longevity. That's what gets you up in the morning. <laughs> what gets you up in the morning is, is material gain. What gets you up in the morning is 
even something as wholesome as family. The ones that Jesus represents come to a point where their whole aim is God. I'm not overstating this. I am not. Jesus made it clear himself. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added onto you. Prioritize correctly. Make God the center of everything. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You shouldn't even eat your meals without eating and drinking to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So, so this is evident throughout the word of God. The whole purpose of men is to have God as their aim. You think of Revelation 4, it's just coming to mind. It's not here. I'm thinking of Revelation 4, 11, where, where, where the expression is given. I, mean, I tell you, <laughs> if men would just stop, I mean, if the average person would just stop and ponder Revelation 4.11 and what it's saying, that all of creation, everything, everything, not exaggerating, everything has its end and purpose for God. For thy pleasure, everything was created. For thy pleasure. And here we are, lofty humanity, imagining that we can somehow circumvent that objective that Almighty God has, that we can successfully change the goal and live successfully by rejecting the very thing that God has laid out in His Word. No, God is their aim. In his body of divinity, Thomas Watson summarizes man's interest in glorifying God in four ways. You can get it and read it for yourself. It deals with appreciation, adoration, affection, and subjection. Those are the four areas in which we truly glorify God. How we express our desire to glorify God. We come unto God, we live unto God, we give ourselves to God, appreciating, adoring, with affection and subjection. Now let me ask you, is God your aim? One of the dangers is especially, well, it really, at any season of life, so... So when, when, you're, when you're young, right, when you're really young, some young people here, some kids here, and you struggle when you're young because your aim might be some hobby or fun and games and that's what gets you going. And it's, it's hard. What, what mom and dad need to be helping you over time and praying for you is that you grasp that my existence, even at six years of age, my existence, even at nine years of age, my existence is, is first Godward, right? I'm here for God. And in your teens, when you're starting to, Give yourself more heavily to education and schoolwork and, and projects and so on. Again, you can get carried away with your pet projects, the things you love to do. Young boys going out, maybe pulling things apart and building them again and, and, and doing all sorts of things outside. And you, this is what gets you up in the morning. And yet, even in that, your whole purpose, your whole purpose is first God. And then you get into college years and your, your whole goal is to su succeed in college. Again, you can, you can undermine your goal as God. What's it all for if you've ignored God, left God out of the picture? And then you get a little farther, you begin to think about marriage, and you think your whole goal is to find a spouse. She, she or he ticks all the boxes. She, she or she's the one that you've been looking for. And again, you get sidetracked. You get sidetracked. You, you think, this is the objective. This is my purpose. This is my goal now. I have this little window here. I have to find this person. And, and God is not the goal. 
And, you know, it's, it's very easy sometimes to see it because when you give counsel about, about education, about finding a spouse and so on, and you, you make it spiritual, they reject it. They reject it. When they say about go on fast and pray, wait on God about what you should do for college, they don't do it. Have, have, have a time each week where you go and you spend 30 minutes a week where you, the only thing you pray about is, is a spouse and you wait on God, maybe longer. And you say, God, bring, us, bring someone into my life. Bring, and they won't do it. They won't do it. They'll run for miles. They'll, they'll buy plane tickets and go to other places and they'll go to conferences and they'll do everything. But they will not ask God. They have lost sight. They think it's in their own power. Jesus is able to save them, but he's not able to bring a spouse into their life. Jesus is able to save them, but he's not able to guide them in the very thing that they should do with their life, as far as profession and so on. This is unbelief at work. It's like Jesus was there for my past to deal with my sin, and I can ignore it. The whole purpose of the book of Hebrews is it's onto God. Onto God, but in a specific way. Because it's not only God as their aim, but Christ as their answer. Christ is their answer. Unto God by him. That's crucial. Because there are many religious people. But Christ is not the one through whom they come to God. And so they've lived with an eye for God, but they have sought to climb their own way to God. They do not recognize Jesus as their high priest. They don't understand what it means that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So they, they, they go up, they climb up some other way. No, no, the ones represented by Jesus, the one that he saves and he keeps, and the ones that can look to him and say, yes, <laughs> he, he represents me, are those who come unto God by him. They recognize that they have no approach before God without him. They have no answer for their sin without him. There's nothing but the blood of Jesus that can cleanse away their sin. This is what they praise. This is what they adore. This is what they rest in. This is their hope. They see their greatest problem is their sin, and Jesus is the only answer. They need to get to God because they were made. They were made for his pleasure, but they can't truly live for his pleasure without Jesus Christ. So they become distinct because not only is God their aim, but Christ is their answer. They come unto God by him. By him. This is the objective. Get to God through Jesus Christ. So he represents them. Obviously that makes sense, doesn't it? Because we're all trying to get to God. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. John 14, 6. So, so he stands there. And so everyone's trying to get to God. And he, Jesus dealt with the Jews in his day who were trying to get to God, thought they could get to God, who claimed to be Abraham's seed. And they weren't getting to God. They were not getting to God because they ignored Christ. This is why it's so urgent that we preach the gospel, isn't it? Because in this, even here, in the South, in this country that, at least this in this part of the world, has so many churches and expressions of Christianity and other religions. There's a lot of things that sound, sound very like they might be true, but men are circumventing Jesus Christ. 
Or they may tip their hat to him in some way, but they're not truly resting in him alone. And so he doesn't represent them. He's able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. Brings us forcefully then to the perpetuity of this high priest. Don't have to say too much here, but seeing he ever liveth, he ever liveth. Men like Enoch and Elijah were, by God's sovereign power, appointed to circumvent death. A number of individuals in the Old Testament and the New were brought back from the death, from death. But they eventually died again, their bodies decayed in their graves. And we are left with one, only one, who in his humanity ever lives. Even now, saints who have died do not possess their bodies. They're still awaiting resurrection. But this one stepped into death, stepped out of it again, as we've said, and preserved human nature through death, held back the corrupting power of death, and rose again unsullied by the natural processes of death. Only Jesus. The only one. And our Savior then spent 40 days showing himself alive. Many infallible proofs. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people saw him. And what was he doing for them? What was he doing in those 40 days? Well, we might say, just touching on this. First, he was giving assurance of his resurrection, wasn't he? If he had just appeared in one moment... They might have thought to themselves, did we hallucinate there? What went on there? What was that? What just happened? <laughs> he just appeared for a moment and then disappeared. Maybe it's a hallucination. And some have said that. And they've argued that was, they were hallucinating. It was 40 days. 40 days ongoing. Other people came in and confirmed what everyone could see and experience. So it gives assurance of his resurrection. He also gave instruction for their mission, didn't he? He told them what they were to do. You read those days and he's, 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 he's shaping them and preparing them. Sometimes it's very individual because people like Peter need some, they need some personal encouragement, need some personal guidance from the Lord Jesus. Prepare them for the mission. But they all were instructed for the mission that lay ahead. And thirdly, it gave them confidence in their message. Didn't it? Everything they had heard. Everything they had heard, it's like the whole weight of it, no matter how moved they had been, no matter how uh, impressed they had been, never man spake like this man, all of that that they could recall, all of a sudden, even though they were impressed at the time when he was giving his, his sermons, his speeches, his lectures, his instruction, they were impressed by it all, and it carried a certain weight. And no doubt they may have rehearsed it and talked about it and so on, but, but when... <laughs> When he died and he rose again from the dead, everything he said all of a sudden is elevated to the nth degree. This, this, this takes it to a higher level. We, we couldn't believe what we were hearing when he stood there in front of us. Now that he entered into death and stepped out of it again, the world needs to hear what this man declared 
Oh, do we not feel the impulses moving through the fiber of our being, driving us that the world must hear what it is that he has taught and what it is that he has done. Oh, it gave them confidence in their message. (laughs) You see it, you see it. And of course, you can tie in the unfilling of the Holy Spirit in it all as well, but but there is this this marked contrast where Peter's standing and a maid's challenging him. Are you not one of them that was with him? And he's denying it. And basically, days later, he stands not before some maid. He stands before a vast audience of Jews. And fearlessly, even though they had just crucified his Savior, he fearlessly looks them in the face and he declares who he is and what he has done. He owns them. Christ then ascends in the very presence of his people in a posture of benediction. And then God's people begin to pray with a confidence never before known. Never before known. Oh, Moses spoke with God face to face. Abraham is a friend of God, but but they just gave a little indication into what was to be the experience of God's people who rightly comprehend the one who represents them and what it is that he has achieved. And so the book of Acts becomes this blueprint of, of what Christian living looks like when people actually take to heart that the Son of God was made flesh, lived, died, and rose again and ascended into heaven where he is not now saying, well, I did my job, all the best, hope you do well, but he continues in the power of an endless life serving. And that's what this text is telling you, that it didn't end at Calvary. And it didn't end at the ascension. He is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth. He continues to live. So Christ lives in heaven to present before the Father on behalf of his people the value of his person and the value of his work. Standing there in his two natures in one person, being the the perfect attorney for the people of God, arguing their case and the value of his work, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will yet do. Which brings us finally then to the practice of this high priest. And this is great because he makes intercession for them. This This is really the heart of it, isn't it? He is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth because of the fact he ever lives to do this particular work, intercede for them. Now go for a moment to John 17. Here's really where we'll tie things up for today. What's he doing? This practice of interceding. You see it here. I think if we can say anything about what it is Jesus prays or how he prays, John 17 has to be enlightening to us. Does it perfectly reflect this? Possibly not. But if we're going to argue a case where we want to get some perspective on what it is that Jesus 
Dawes and his intercessory work, then this is the chapter we turn to. I, I, I don't have a lot of time. I have just seven things that I've highlighted here from this chapter that we might say this is what he's praying for. We'll say, first of all, he's praying for their salvation. Verse 2, as thou hast given him power over all, all flesh, that's to the Son, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. There he is. He's praying over the matter of salvation. He's praying over the fact that here I am appointed to be the mediator of the elect. I'm the one who's come to bring sinners to God. He's praying over that. That's where it begins in the sense of to enjoy this fellowship, to enjoy this communion, to make those people belong to God. They must have this experience of salvation. They must possess eternal life. They must be born from above. Boys and girls, are you born again? Are you born again? Jesus prays. He prays looking for this salvation, eternal life to as many as I has given him. He prays for their education. Verse 3, this is life eternal that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. This has an ongoing emphasis. It's not just in conversion, but throughout their life. Look at verse 8, for I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me. They have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. They're, they're being educated. They've been instructed. And this is what he's praying about. He's praying for the education. He's praying for the mind, because he wants us to love the Lord our God with all of our minds, doesn't he? That's what he wants us to do. So he educates. He takes this role. I will educate them. He's praying for it. He prays for their protection. Verse 9. I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. Verse 11, and now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. Also verse 15, he is to keep them, and also verse 15, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil, or some translate it the evil one. So they are to be protected. He's praying. He's praying for this. There's also unification. We saw that at the end of verse 11, that they may be one as we are. And there are other passages that deal with this too. See them united. See them harmonized. Don't let them live in conflict with one another. Don't let them show a divided body. They are members one of another. Let them show that love. He prays for it. He prays for their jubilation. Verse 13, now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I want that. I'm speaking, I'm taught, I'm instructed that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Oh, he prays for you, downcast believer. Prays for your joy. Prays for your jubilation that you might know more of what is accomplished and enter into the gladness of it. He prays sickly for your sanctification doesn't he? Verse 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. He wants them changed from glory into glory as by the Spirit of God. And then he prays for the occupation. Verse 20, neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe in me through their word. That's what they're occupied with, giving his word, that they all may be one as thy Father art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Oh, that they would go and occupy in this work that the world may believe. That they might teach and instruct and live in such a way 
that the world sees it. So here's something of his practice of intercessory, intercessory work. It's just a snapshot. It's just a snapshot. And this is, this is so encouraging. I, I, but I want, I want it to point you to, if you go to Luke 22, Luke 22, just to see the practical reality of this in Peter's life. There's one who intercedes. And what are we saying? We're saying, beloved, this is why you'll make it to the end. This is why if you keep your eyes on Jesus Christ, you don't need to worry about the difficulties along the way. You don't need to be concerned about whether you'll make it through the valley or over the mountain. You don't need to be wondering, will I make it? Where will I be in a year's time? Where will I be in two years' time and ten years? And, and will I carry on? Don't worry about those things. Just keep your eyes on your high priest, your great high priest, who is able to save to the uttermost. And he's praying. And oh, how Peter was to experience it. Look at it. Verse 20, 31, pardon me. Luke 22, 31. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, Behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. Did, did Peter know it? No. So here you have the fact that you can't rely on your own praying because you don't even know what's going on half the time. You're not even aware of the dangers. You might look at this great obstacle and you're worried about this, this health report or, or some other factor you're dealing with in your family about finances or some other. And you're looking at that and the whole time, the whole time, it's, it's like, it's, like this, it's, a, it's a little, it's a tiny little dog that's barking at you and barely has a, a, a bite, a, a mouth large enough to give you any damage or, or, or break the skin. You know, you're worried, look at this, look at this thing. And there's this other host of the enemy, Satan and all of his minions who gather around your soul to destroy you. And he's like the largest army, the most destructive force outside of God. And he's after you. And you don't even know. Peter didn't even know. Satan has desired to have you. And you're not even aware. So how do you make it to heaven? <laughs> it's not because you pray so well, because half times you don't even know what is most pertinent in praying, in your praying, because you don't know what's going on. But you have a great high priest of Dawes. You see his knowledge? He knows. He knows what Peter doesn't. He sees what Peter can't. And he sees the enemy lurking in the shadows, ready to pounce. He sees it in your life. Does. He sees it every time. Satan seeks to charge after your soul. But he is just seeing the opportune moment. I, I, I've been waiting for this because this is his weakness. This, this is the Achilles heel that she has. This is the opportune moment. He's right there. And you don't even know. He tries to orchestrate events. He endeavors to manifest everything necessary to destroy your soul and you're not even cognizant of it. You don't know. You're just drifting along. It's just another Tuesday and yet hell is being let loose against you and you've won in the glory who is able to save to the uttermost 
all that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. And this is what you see in a snapshot here. He wants to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for thee. You don't only have here his divine knowledge, you have his individual compassion, don't you? Individual compassion for Peter. So he's not just praying. And I don't begin to ask me how does all this work. I don't know. I have no idea how Jesus Christ in glory prays with a sense of individual need for all his people. He has to be God to do this. And he is. I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And there is his proven success, his divine knowledge, his individual compassion, his proven success. Did Peter carry on to the end? Yes. Yes, he did. He carried on to the end, even though he's told, Peter, you're going to give up your life. But he carries on to the end. When his dear friend and brother James has his head lopped off by Herod. Then he's arrested. What do we find Peter doing? Petrified. Worried. Appealing to all the courts of the land. No. He's asleep in the prison. He's let, yes, the church is praying for him, but I don't think Peter's resting on the prayers of the church that are praying on to God for him. Where's Peter resting? In Jesus. Jesus ever lives, never slumbers nor sleeps. Praying for me, I'm, I'm just going to put my head down here. He's got it. He's so at peace. He's not like the kind of sleep a mom gets when she's, you know, nursing. And she has a little one that's dependent on her where she's more like the dog with one ear cocked. <laughs> no, it's not, not really. The heart rate doesn't drop. There's not real proper rest. That's not the kind of rest that Peter had because Peter comes and the angel has to hit him. Wake up, Peter. Oh, oh he's a total peace. Having the best sleep of his life. Why? Because he had won in glory, ever living to intercede. Beloved, this is, this is what you have. This is what I have. This is why you'll endure to the end. This is why you'll be kept. You're kept by the power of God. The power of God is manifest through the intercessory work of Jesus Christ. You can go into this week and you can say he lives. He lives. He lives for me. He lives for me. He's praying right now. <laughs> I stumbled over prayer this morning. I was up late and I stumbled out of bed. Barely got myself together to get to work on time. But the Lord, you carry me today. And he does. He upholds you.
Child of God, rest in this. Through all your troubles and difficulties, through all your joys, come and rest. Behold, he lives and prays for you. Let's bow together in prayer. Dear child of God, just this is one of those messages that you simply just throw yourself into the arms of. So make sure you do that. Lord, we pray, bless. Bless us with faith to rest. To rest in the truth of thy word. To cast all our cares concerns, anxieties, and worries into the arms of one who has the power to carry them in a way that we cannot. Grant strength to thy people. May they be filled with the expectation that their God lives and that Jesus Christ represents them and that he will carry them through death into eternity unwaveringly. Oh, bless us, bless us. Bless us as a people resting in this truth and empower us through our knowledge of it. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all the people of God now and evermore. Amen.